0: in the name of Overhead Athletics Podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Jason Nowitzki. Dr. Nowitzki here is actually a psychologist, sports psychologist, he also works in the school system. He was a college baseball player and he earned his bachelor's degree in psychology at University of Detroit Mercy, where he played baseball. He went from there and pursued a master's degree in school and community psychology. And then he went on to get his PhD in education at Oakland University. Welcome to the podcast, Jason.
1: Thanks, Max, happy to be here. Glad we could get this worked out. Yeah,
0: additionally to what you do in the schools, you have champion mindset and performance where you work with a lot of athletes and in particular, many of our baseball players that we work with at the Overhead Athletic Institute, how did you end up pursuing sports psychology?
1: Well, uh, the, the back story there is I needed it when I was in college. So uh, I actually started out my collegiate career at the University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, I was recruited out of uh, this local area, Metro Detroit, I went to Oak Park High School. And uh, unfortunately, probably needed you back in the day too, got hurt. my. Uh, freshman year at Southern Miss, hurt my back bad in a bullpen, and the rehab was taking so long that uh, I needed to take a medical red shirt. And then uh, at the end of that school year, just decided it was a good move for me to come back home and transfer to a school here, so I ended up at U of D. Uh, played my four years there and that's where my mental troubles started a little bit so uh, i had the opportunity to pitch right away Uh, coach miller who uh, recently passed away was a great man and gave me an opportunity uh, to be a starter as a redshirt freshman but i was not having the same level of success that i was having at the high school level and i was really frustrated about it i was losing a lot i was leaving games early and it wasn't for a lack of talent, as he kept telling me, I could throw just as hard as everybody, and I had good, pretty decent mechanics and command of pitches, but mentally, I was just not what we call now, in the present. I was so worried about everything else around me, and I lacked focus and concentration, and, and I got easily frustrated. My body language showed that a lot, and my, my teammates and my upperclassmen and captains kept saying to me, it's more mental than physical with you, and... You know, Max, remember, this is 1988 back then, so no one's really talking about the mental game in the right. public. Uh, and there was no YouTube, and there was no uh, Google to find out what the heck they were talking about. So somebody handed me the classic all-time book, The Mental Game of Baseball, by Harvey Dorfman. And at first, I didn't want to read it, Max, because that was kind of admitting something was wrong. And, you know, as a guy and as an athlete, you don't want to ever admit something's going on up here. So, uh, But finally, after another loss, I said, I better sit down and read this book. And everything that Dr. Dorfman was saying in the book started to make sense with me. Uh, I started to really uh, reevaluate the narrative that was going on in my head, how I was talking to myself, uh, my ability to be more mentally and physically prepared for every start, um, how to develop routines and systems uh, so I could concentrate under pressure and be more resilient, uh, after adversity, and slowly but surely I started started to see a big difference uh, in, in my ability to stay more present. And that turned into and translated into more victories and obviously having a lot more fun playing Division I baseball. So I went on to have a very nice career uh, using the mental game. I didn't change a whole lot physically as time went on. It was just really the importance of being more prepared, staying focused, recovering. Uh, self-talk, all, visualization, all the things that we talk about in sports psychology, I started implementing very well. And uh, unfortunately, I had an elbow injury my senior year, and that kind of ended it for me. But I knew there was something to this thing we call the mental game. <clears throat> and uh, so I decided to go on and study all those things. And as you said, worked in education. I just retired uh, after 25 years as a school psychologist, too. Congratulations. Started champ- thank you. Thank you. Started champion mindset group about 12 years ago. And that's been going really strong because there's clearly a high need for mental skills coaching and training uh, in, you know, young elite athletics these days.
0: Do you feel that sports psychology is one of those overlooked uh, disciplines when it comes to sports performance and training, especially for Uh, younger athletes?
1: Yeah, especially for younger athletes, I do think it's overlooked. Um... And that's the testament to how busy I am lately now. Uh, I think more people are starting to figure out that kids as young as 10, 11, 12 can learn how to manage their confidence a lot better, uh, how to be more mentally prepared, and I can give them drills and strategies to stay more focused and and be more resilient. Uh, I think it's becoming more mainstream uh, as time goes on. I think our society as a whole is becoming more uh, what we call okay with mental health. And um, and so, yeah, there's a rise in the popularity of adding the mental skills coach to the repertoire of the athlete's team, you know, in addition to strength and conditioning and, and all the other things that we do for our young athletes.
0: That has been the traditional <clears throat> mantra of there must be something wrong with me if I need to see a sports psychologist. And really in, in my profession, it's the same thing with athletes needing to see a physical therapist, they don't want something Mm -hmm. to be wrong with them. So they don't want to go and and pursue something that could potentially take them to the next level and eradicate or improve a lot of the problems and situations that they're coming across. When you're dealing with difficult parents um, and sometimes uh, individuals who haven't fully bought into the entire process of what you're doing with positive affirmations, visualization. What's your first step there? Well,
1: one of the first things I do right away when I meet a new client is let them know that what we're doing here in my office is not therapy. They're not typically there because something's quote wrong with them. Now, I do see athletes that come in that have pretty significant anxiety and and other things maybe going on in their family life that, you know, we'll talk out from time to time. But I would say the majority of my athletes that I work with are, are doing okay on the emotional side. And once I explain to them, like, look, again, nothing's wrong with you. We're trying to make you better. You're obviously a great athlete. You wouldn't be at the level you're at right now if you didn't already have some mental skills. But we're gonna, we're gonna take a little tour around your mind and we're gonna figure out what you can do better. And so I'm gonna give them the tools and strategies they need uh, to enhance their physical performance by using the, the untapped area of their mind.
0: Beyond just getting them to buy into the system and making sure you know, the athletes are getting proper rest and eating proper nutrition and these things, what can we start to do to improve the psyche of our athletes from the perspective of rehabilitation professionals who are working with injured athletes or even with athletes who come in who are looking for that extra little bit of performance but maybe you know just there's a little bit of something going on in their mind obviously we can refer to somebody like you mm-hmm. and send send athletes to you what what can we start to do in our in our facility
1: I think one real powerful thing that any person working with an athlete whether it's a coach or someone in your profession Uh, even medical professionals, doctors, um, is listen to how they talk to themselves and about themselves. Um, We call that the narrative. And the narrative in our mind is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And I think we can do a better job and, and everybody that supports athletes is to make sure that that narrative is not so much positive all the time, but at least neutral. And and the athletes are talking about what they need to do to be more successful or to have more fun or enjoy their sport. And and the opposite of that obviously is negative. And so many people are self-deprecating to themselves. And sometimes they do it in jest or out loud, but the repetition of those negative messages that we send ourselves about ourselves, they add up. And I always say to my athletes, be careful what you say to yourself and out loud because you're listening and you have to think of your subconscious is like the hard drive in your computer and you're programming it constantly and that subconscious is the thing that runs you and so if it believes that you're bad at this or you're never going to do this or i have bad luck or this always happens to me and we catastrophize things like that then that's how you're going to act and behave because human beings have a funny way of wanting to be right And if the story we're telling ourselves is negative, then we're going to behave and perform based on those beliefs that we have about ourselves. So I think from your point of view, be mindful and have that ear out for how athletes talk to themselves, especially when it comes to injuries like, oh, I always get hurt or I'm always weak in this area. Well, then they're going to believe that. And we want to say, hey, you're getting stronger. You're working on it. I'm not saying you got to be a rah-rah cheerleader about it, but at least focus on what they need to do to be successful. And we kind of call that neutral thinking.
0: Neutral thinking, particularly when we have somebody who has kind of what you're talking about, we often refer to it as the fragility mindset of, mm-hmm. I'm fragile, I might get injured. And, and I know we were just talking off air recently about this. If, if we have an athlete who's, who's kind of got this fragility mindset, we can we can start to do some things where we're replacing maybe these negative phrases with some positive affirmations. What, what else are are you doing from the psychology and sports psychology side of things to start to break that down and, and actually replace it with maybe something more positive?
1: Yeah, so something we create, um, you know, after I get to know a client pretty well, <clears throat> you know, we call it an identity statement. Basically, it's a statement of who you are and who you want to be. Um, so often I'll ask an athlete, you know, if you could give me a couple sentences of who you are describe yourself. And you would not believe how difficult that is for a lot of athletes, even older athletes, to really sit and think and give a coherent statement about who they are as an athlete or as a person. And it's really easy for them to self-deprecate about what they're not, but what they want to be and who they are is really uncomfortable. And so we take some time and we say, well, for example, if we were creating a brand image for you what would that brand image be? How would you want people to think about you? How do you want to think of yourself? So I'll give them an example of, okay, when you hear uh, the car company, Mercedes or Porsche or McLaren, what does that make you think? You know, it gives off an image, right? It gives off an image of high end, luxury, performance, fast, powerful. But when you hear you know, another, I won't name another company, but when you aim, aim an, you know, an average car company, They'll say, well, you know, that's just a regular family car, gets me from point A to point B. And I say, okay, well, when you hear your name and others hear your name, do you want them to think Mercedes or that average car? And of course they want to think Mercedes. I say, well, then let's build an image and a self-image of what that looks like for you. And so, Max, we take a lot of time and we brainstorm various adjectives, attributes, character skills that they want to become. Some of them they already have. And so we just enhance that. And we end up after about a 45-minute session doing that, sometimes it takes more than one, of developing a short paragraph of who they are. And once they have that, I say, okay, I need you to read that statement several times a day out loud when you're by yourself, maybe even record it into your phone, listen to it while you're stretching or, or you know brushing your teeth, whatever it is, because we want to reprogram your mind. So, you have an easy decision to make. When you're in a certain situation, you simply ask yourself, how would the guy in my statement perform? What decision would they make right now? What kind of what kind of body language would they be exhibiting in this situation? How would they react to adversity? How would they prepare for a game? And then, you know, once you have that statement and you have something like a filter to put your decisions through, things start to change pretty quickly. And after a short time, they start noticing that their behavior and their confidence starts to change and fit more closely with that person and that identity statement.
0: Is this identity statement specific to sport or is this in general? It's a great question. Because obviously we have a lot of athletes who tie their uh, athletic pursuits to their identity as a person. Yeah,
1: um, we kind of mix and match. Uh, It really depends on where I'm at with an athlete. Sometimes they're a great person, off the field, so to speak, and they have no issues there, but between the lines, they're different. They have what we call their athletic self. And so we just sometimes focus on an athletic identity statement, but I have a lot of young athletes who are very character-minded and they say, you know, I want to combine this with who I am as a person every day and as an athlete. And so we talk about, well, what character skills as a person do you also want to show up on the field? And then we work on those things as well in the identity statement.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. that makes sense, and then they're continually reading that and reinforcing that every day. I
1: hope so. I mean, that's you know, I can only control what I can control. So they have to make that decision, right, exactly. you know, just like I'm sure you say, you know, do these stretches and do these exercises at home to maintain your fitness or to maintain your strength. So obviously, uh, you know, the athlete's only is going to be as good as their discipline to do things uh, outside the office. But yeah, and we combine that with some other things that I call a mental workout program. So, you know, as you know, how many times have you heard the statement, you know, the game's 90% mental, but most athletes only, you know, spend 99% of their time on the physical part of the game. And so I say, well, we need to invest some more time on the mental side. So we create a mental workout. And a mental workout might consist of the daily reading of your goals, which we obviously create together with them, Uh, the reading of their identity statement. Uh, practicing some relaxation and visualization strategies that i also teach them Uh, doing some concentration drill work so other things that i teach them as well and then maybe finishing up with another reading of their identity statement and then review of their goals and selecting a process goal from their goal sheet uh, that they're going to really focus on for the day or a character skill that they're going to focus on for the day so each day we're trying to get 1% better from the mental standpoint. And if we can do that cumulatively over time, you know that really adds
0: up. That makes perfect sense. We go into goal setting mm-hmm. a little bit. When you're going through goal setting with athletes, walk me through mm-hmm. that process. Yeah. You would. I mean,
1: everybody talks a lot about smart goals and things like that, which are great. Uh, I, I try to simplify it a little bit. <clears throat> and so I break goals down into three basic sections. Ultimate goals is the dream, you know, that's the long-term dream of where we want to be. So if I've got a, you know, a very good high school athlete that's getting recruited uh, to play collegiate uh, and maybe has aspirations of playing professional sports someday, I'll say, okay, when your career is all said and done, and let's assume we're having a retirement banquet in your honor, and people are going to come up and give speeches about you at this banquet, What are the things they're going to be able to say that you accomplished as an athlete and a person? So those are going to be the ultimate goals. And we write them very specifically, not just I want to be a Major League Baseball player or I want to make the All-Star Game as a professional baseball player someday. No, I will be a Major League Baseball player and will play in three All-Star Games by the time I'm 30 years old. Like down to the year how specific, you know, we want it to be very specific for their ultimate goals and all the goals. And then we drop down to what we call performance related goals, outcome goals for the next 12 months. And these obviously change every year. And we'll maybe create three to five performance related goals. So that's them against the competition, them against themselves, them uh, compared to certain statistics or strength or weight, something we can measure. That you know we know we, we achieved it. So I will put on ten pounds by August 30th, 2021. Uh, my velocity will be I will be sitting consistently at 91 to 92 by you know uh, September 1st, 2021. And those type of goals, or I will make this team and be a starter, or bat in the top three in the lineup, things like that. Now obviously we can't control all those things because there's a lot of variables that are outside of our control, but it gives us a nice vision and some motivation to start working but then we get to the most important kind of goal max and that's the process that's the recipe that's the ingredients to making those other things happen the things that they can control so for example i'll say all right well you want your velocity to be at 91 92 by this date all right where are we at now and what are you going to do physically and mentally on a daily or weekly basis that gives you the best shot to make that happen So it might be, well, I will attend my throwing program three times a week. I will stretch every day for 15 minutes. Uh, I will do my mental training three to five days a week for 15 minutes. I'll monitor my self-talk, all those things that we know if we do those really well, we have the best shot at achieving our goal. And, And sometimes, and here's the rub. Sometimes people shy away from making those specific type of goals. And it's about fear. It's about fear of failure, fear of not making it happen, and fear of feeling bad when it doesn't happen, or fear of wasting time, um, going all out and not achieving something. And then we have a discussion about, wouldn't it be better to go for it 100%, be all in, and even if it doesn't work out, even if you fall short, you're going to learn so much about yourself that you're gonna be able to apply those things you did, that level of discipline, that level of dedication to other aspects of your life. Versus if you don't go for it, if you don't commit, if you're not all in, if you're afraid, you're gonna walk away in a couple years with a lot of regret and a lot of wasted time that you could have done something better. And that's a tough pill to swallow. So I talk to my athletes a lot about, you know, I'd rather you go through the pain of discipline than the pain of disappointment and regret, because those those tastes really bad compared to just being disappointed that you didn't, you know, didn't make your goal.
0: Interesting story here, and maybe this will lead into a discussion on okay. visualization a little bit. Okay. We're in a PT school, first semester of PT school. One of our professors, maybe like week two into PT school, one of our professors asked about mm-hmm. mindfulness and who's practicing mindfulness, who's practicing positive affirmation, who who's used visualization. And I and I raised my hand and said, so, you know, I, I do visualization and uh, I use positive affirmations and like the class is all chuckling like, <laughs> oh what is that? You know, this is <laughs> like voodoo type of stuff. And I'm like, hold on a second, hold on a second. And and then uh, you know, interestingly enough, Carter is also in my classes. So, so I I practice visualization when I'm <laughs> when I'm driving. So <laughs> I'm like, well, everybody's everybody's cracking up then. But it just in, enlightened uh, the point to me that, there and there's former athletes sure. in the class and everything like that. How can this many people think of visualization in this light? And it and it has to be from a, uh, from a point of ignorance and not. Truly understanding, or naivety and not understanding what visualization is and, mm-hmm. and what it has to offer. That's why I, I don't know like with uh, with my performance I always saw a huge benefit, but I don't know how you can go through life as an athlete and never encounter visualization. So I'm sure you you come yeah, across. Yeah, I mean that whether people time time.
1: realize it or not, we visualize all the time. You know, you imagine how your day is going to go. You. You might uh, imagine how a speech or a job interview or a sales call is going to go. So people use visualization maybe without even realizing it. But true, like what I call visualization training, is very deliberate and intentional. So a serious athlete, I mean there's probably not many serious athletes these days that don't use some type of visualization to help them build their confidence or be more mentally prepared. Uh, so we take our athletes through a process of teaching them how to, step by step, take some time to do the visualization. And it starts with first finding a quiet place where you're going you're gonna to do this, where you're not going to be interrupted. Um, decide what you want to visualize, whether it's going to be an upcoming performance, or maybe you're going to replay a, a past successful performance to build some confidence back up. Um, Then go through some breathing and mindfulness, like you said, or relaxation techniques, and then close your eyes and kind of go what I call the movies in your mind. Go to the movies in your mind and, and see your performance from your perspective, from your point of view, which we found to be the most powerful type of visualization versus watching yourself on a screen. Be there, like virtually be there. And when you do it really well, you will actually feel your muscles twitch sometimes during part of that performance, that, that tells you you're really connected with the visualization. Um, we know through research that the brain doesn't necessarily know the difference between what's real and what you imagine. Uh, when they do fMRI studies on athletes that are actually performing a task, like shooting free throws, versus visualizing free throws, the brain scans of those different groups of athletes looks very, very similar. So the brain is cooking, so to speak, in the same areas when you're performing physically or when you're just imagining mentally. So we can take advantage of that visualization to train the brain more, get more repetitions in, and feel more confident by just the use of visualization and imagery.
0: Now, I haven't actually seen the studies athletes visualize and when they actually perform, not only do they have similar fMRI studies, but they also have similar EMG and electromyography where they're actually sensing in the same sequence um, muscle activation or neural input to the muscle, Yeah, which is phenomenal. Obviously the muscle's not being trained the same way that it would be in actual, uh, actually physically doing it, but you're still learning that sequence and that actual motor output, you actually have some some amount of motor output, which is particularly beneficial for the athletes that I'm working with at the Overhead Athletic Institute that are injured and then need to alter the way they're doing something to decrease the stress and strain yep. on a particular structure. With those athletes, you've, you've done through through your research, you feel that through like a first-person type of view is their most effective form of visualization as opposed to that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it wasn't necessarily my
1: out. research. It's the research I've read. Uh, I haven't actually done the research myself, but uh, right, yeah, right. We, yeah, in the field of sports psychology, it's kind of a known thing that we prefer to teach athletes how to visualize in that kind of first-person point of view um, aspect because that's more realistic. That's what you're going to see when you're actually out there performing. Uh, I have noticed over the last 10-12 years or so that it's, it's a little difficult for some of the younger athletes to learn how to do that because, because of YouTube and social media, they're so used to seeing themselves on a screen uh, because everybody records stuff these days, which is great, but they find it more difficult to see it from their point of view, so we have to work a little bit harder on that. It can be done but uh, I find that some, for some younger kids, it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, and just go, you know, to build on what you said earlier about the visualization for your clients, uh, it's incredibly powerful to use visualization to help build confidence back up too uh, as they're recuperating from an injury, you know, to see themselves put their foot in the ground and test that knee and feel good about it as well. So the more they can visualize while they're going through rehab uh, is just another added thing that they can do for their, their comeback.
0: On the field, do you advocate for visualization? I know when I was a pitcher, it was something I developed where if I'm not pitching the way I wanted to, I would spend time before each pitch and see exactly where it was going and, and how I wanted it to go. Is that something you would advocate yeah, for? Yeah, I do advocate for it uh, quite or, strongly, yeah, actually.
1: Um, not to the deep level that we just talked about where they're doing, like relaxation and things like that, but uh, I help right. my athletes develop what we call like a pre-play or a pre-pitch routine where like, like if we're going to stick with pitchers, like you get the ball back from your catcher and we call it BSTV. It's just an acronym. Take a breath understand the situation that you're in, what's the count, how many outs, then step up on the mound, get your task or your target, that's the T from your catcher. And then before you go into your delivery, visualize that pitch going where you want it to go. See the ball traveling. Uh, I had one athlete, it was a college athlete of mine that I worked with, uh, told me what he liked to do was visualize a laser, a colored laser going to the catcher's glove and he would choose a different color for each kind of pitch he was throwing, and that helped him see it very. Yeah, I, th- I was blown away. It was his idea, and I was oh, like, wow. "I'm using that until he's doing that." Yeah. And uh, so he said, "Yeah, for fastball he used red, blue, curveball, green, changeup, etc." And that helped him focus better because he had to. He got to actually decide to see the color, and so and what that routine and the visualization does, it's like a reset button. And it just resets you to be in the present moment, where Max, that's where we need to be in the routines and visualizations helps you be present you see golfers do it all the time most recently you know phil mickelson went in the PJ championship talked a lot about the importance of visualizing a shot and being in the present moment and you could see how he dramatically slowed himself down before every shot so he felt present visualized, and then executed the shot pitchers hitters can do the same thing you can do it when you're playing defense in the field between each pitch take a breath What's the situation in the game? What's my job or task? If it's hit to me, see yourself performing that task. Get into your ready position and go.
0: There's the famous story about the golfer who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Yes. You yes. want to talk about that at all, or?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's uh, you know, these days it's kind—I don't know if it's true or an urban legend these days—but it's been told so many times uh, that he was a prisoner of war, and to kind of maintain his sanity each day. And he was a golfer back home he would play 18 holes of golf or something to that effect in his mind every day that you know like taking his time took hours to do it helped him pass the time and obviously physically he was being depleted he wasn't getting much nutrition he wasn't being able to exercise and then once he got back home and got his strength back he went out and played golf and it didn't take him very long at all to be a great golfer like he was before he left for war. So the visualization trained his mind and kept it fresh, kept it strong. So he did not have such a big drop off in his physical skills when he got his strength back.
0: And I like the quote at the end of the story, which was, how are you able to do this? You haven't golfed in (laughs) years. What are you talking about? I golfed 18 holes in my mind every day.
1: Every day. Yeah.
0: And people, could use this same sort of thing in their evening routine, because we see individuals who are, they're always on stimulants like caffeine, and then they're going to class, and then they have practice, and they, they have to be at practice, then they have a game, and there's some sort of competition, and then they're going to study hall, and they're always focusing on their, on their uh, academics, and then they go home, and now, they are sitting there at home and now it's time to relax and downregulate and, and get ready for bed. And this, this can be these relaxation techniques and this visualization can be part of their evening routine that can get them actually better prepared for sleep as well.
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh, I prefer my athletes to do it in the morning and at night. I think it's a great way to start your day uh, oh, perfect. To, to live, yeah, live your day with a sense of purpose and intentionality so you have a focus that you're trying to achieve. Uh, But then also, it's a great way to kind of download uh, at the end of the day. Just kind of sit back in a chair or lay in bed, take some deep breaths, uh, kind of get mindful with your body and space, and kind of maybe replay your day, kind of go over some of the highs and lows, Uh, what, what kind of decisions did you make, and then think about, what am I going to do tomorrow? You know, kind of plan the day for tomorrow, visualize how it's going to go, and then usually people tend to drift off to sleep at that point.
0: And planning or failing to plan is planning to fail by yeah. putting together this plan the day in advance and going through things that can even decrease the stress of having to go through it the next day. Cause you already know what you're going to do. You, you have a plan and then it's just taking action on that plan, which is often the easiest component of the whole process. Yeah. And, and
1: you touch on something really important there because it, it ties into confidence, believe it or not. Um, you know, the more you're prepared, the more confident you're going to be. And if you can prepare for the day, the night before, have your routines, prepare for a meeting, prepare for athletics, whatever it is, the more confident you're going to be. And here's the rub though. It takes discipline and you know, we live in this instant gratification society and discipline is what it takes to be elite. You know, doing what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, the way it's supposed to be done, even when you don't feel like it, that's the difference between average and elite, I feel, is that pushing through that feeling of, I don't want to do it right now, it doesn't feel right, or not into it. When you overcome that governor in your mind, so to speak, that holds you back and push through that, man, it feels so good on the other side when you do something that you didn't feel like doing because you knew it was the right thing to do.
0: And that's what you need, like you said, to get to that next level. And if you're athletically gifted and you're superior in all these physical attributes to your peers, you're probably going to be all right, but you're going to get to a point at some point in your career where, just like you said in your introduction, at some point in your career, you're going to get to that point where these physical attributes no longer allow me to Be a head and shoulders above my competition or above my peers. And at that point, I have to do something that I haven't done before to be at the level that I want to be at. And that's the mental game that has been neglected for most of these athletes' entire lives. Mm -hmm. And I like to analogize it to strength and conditioning. If you haven't lifted a weight your entire life and now you're a junior in college, you got to start at the bottom floor and start to build from there step by step by step and that's the same thing with a lot of these guys in my mind with regards to flexibility training is mm. a lot of these athletes have been at the point where they've never done flexibility training and now they're now they're a junior in college and they want to throw 2 miles an hour harder and it's like well you can't even touch your toes so <laughs> we got to we got to start stre- we got to start stretching and we're building from the ground up if you will
1: yeah and that's the same in the mental game. Um, one time, once people actually come in and we start having discussions about you know, what is pressure and what is confidence and how do you manage those things and what is that narrative in your head and what are your mental traps that you didn't even realize were there. And so we go through those exercises and we are at square one uh, because you've been worried about so many things you can't control your whole life And that's what's been holding you back is you're distracted by all these other variables that you have no say in. And once you learn what those are, it's so freeing to be able to let that go and say, you know what? I can't control what other people think. I can't control who's watching the game. I can't control my teammates' performances. I can't go back and change the past or predict the future. But when you learn to recognize that you're overthinking those things, that and you're allowed to just let it go, and you have a routine or a strategy to get you back into the present, which is what you can control, that decreases that pressure and that fear and helps you maximize the physical skills that you're working on with the athletes and so on. So, you know, I think today's athletes that really want to, you know, go far and separate themselves from the pack need to really consider investing hard into what you're doing, what I'm doing, what other strength and conditioning and other nutritional coaches are doing because, you know, at some level, everybody's going to be as good as you and you've got to learn how to separate yourself.
0: How do you start to integrate the mental game into practice and physical practice for athletes so that they're training physical capacity, but they're also really training their their mind and their brain at the same time that they're getting better physically? Or do you just completely separate them?
1: No, I think we can do both. I mean, like I said earlier, we try to have these mental training workouts, you know, incorporated into their daily routines um, at home or when they're on the road. Uh, but that also comes into play like a, like a pregame routine, what they're going to do from the mental standpoint. Like, you know, obviously you talk about pregame stretching, pregame you know, getting ready, warming up the body. Well, we got to warm up the mind, just like the body, to, to get it primed and ready to play. So we try to integrate it from that point of view. But also, which I'm sure you find as well, which is neglected, is the post-game routines. You know, exactly. the, yeah, I'm yep. sure you talk about cooling down and stretching and going home and rolling out or icing down and things like that. Well, you got to do the same thing for the mind. And so we talk about self-evaluation, or I keep, have my athletes keep what we call performance journals and we ask them to respond to two fundamental questions in a journal. What did you do well today and why? So, hey, I struck out seven guys and only walked one. Okay, why did that happen? Well, I was really prepared. Um, you know, uh, my mechanics were very sound. I was staying on my back leg really well when I was throwing. I was finishing. Uh, I used my pre-pitch routine. I stayed in the present moment, things like that. Okay, because now you know why you perform well you can keep doing that because that's a pattern. After a while, you're going to see a pattern. The more you do that, the more success you have. So that's one thing we have. And it doesn't have to be a book on anything. It's just, hey, a couple bullet points of what went well and why. And then ask them, what could you have done better and how are you going to fix it? Not, you know, what would you suck at today or what went wrong? Just, hey, what could I have done a little bit better today and what's my plan? And if I don't know how to fix it, well, then that's where coaches come in or you and me come in you know like okay this is this is a pattern I'm seeing that keeps going wrong or I need to get better at I need some help here and that's what they use for their practice then and so they're constantly improving they're they're polishing up their positives and they're also focusing intentionally and deliberately in practice on what they need to get better at And, and quite honestly Max most people won't do what they need to do to get better and there's a reason why two reasons why number one it's not a lot of fun and people want to have fun and they don't look good while they're doing it and people want to look good and they're so worried about how, what other right. people think and so the difference again between the elite athlete and the average athlete the average athlete just keeps practicing what they're good at because they want to show off and feel good where the really elite athlete doesn't care what other people think and says hey i got to go through this struggle to get better so if I feel bad for a couple days doing it, or if I look bad while I'm doing it, I don't care because I know if I keep doing this, I'm going to be the best ever. But a lot of people won't push through that feeling of being uncomfortable.
0: That's that phenomenon you see on teams where, hey, this guy's a great pitcher, but, man, he's a real weirdo. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing down there in the bullpen type of type of yeah. mentality. How do you get athletes, however, to, to separate the controllables and the uncontrollables they're looking at their performance Oh, i walked three guys say yeah but maybe the the umpire <laughs> the strike zone was was yeah. this big and last week you threw in the umpire strike zone was an entire barrel and you walked one yeah. guy and then you actually were more accurate this week so how do you start to uh break that down and, and get athletes to think in, in a little different yeah light?
1: well first thing about baseball and i was you know i was a pitcher so I I just tell my athletes, look, you have to accept the fact that there is no such thing as a strike zone. There's only such thing as an umpire zone for that day. And so you have to figure out what that is and just accept it. Because that's half the battle. If you accept this is what it is today. This is what I'm dealing with. All right, let's focus on what I need to do again to make this happen. That takes some of the stress and pressure off. Uh, Because like you said, an umpire is a variable that we cannot control. So accept you can't control it and focus on what you need to do. And if that means you're going to have to pitch to more contact today and rely on your defense, well, it is what it is. So just deal with it. Because the more you sit around and complain about it and talk about how not fair it is and last week it was this and this week is this and these guys are terrible and you start yelling and chirping at them, you'll be out of the game in the third inning. And, and then you'll look back and you'll be really frustrated and have a lot of regret. So... I take my athletes through an exercise uh, that has a list of things that we call mental traps. So there's a bunch of things on this list, and uh, and the exercise is simply, hey, we're going to go through this list one by one, I need you to tell me and be super honest with me if this is something that you believe you've been overthinking that distracts you from being in the present. Now, if it happens every now and then, not a big deal, we're not going to check that box on this one. But if you feel like, yeah, I'm overthinking the umpire, I'm overthinking how big the game is, Uh, I'm worried about other people's expectations for me, Uh, I'm too focused on what's going to happen in the future or the past or my teammates. And so we we go through this list and, and the average person will check off six to 10 things, which sounds like a lot, but that's what the average tends to be. But like I said earlier, it's so freeing to see it on paper like, wow, I didn't realize how many things that I was thinking about that I have no control over. And so we break them down, we go through them one by one, and we have a discussion about, You know, tell me more about why the big game is on your mind. And they'll say, well, you know, it's a championship game, and I know it has such an impact on my future, and I I care so much, and I'm being judged and evaluated, and all these things that are creating pressure. And I say, look, if it's a championship game or pool play game, are the rules any different and they think, like, what do you mean? I say, well, isn't it still baseball? Don't you still have to hit your spots and get guys out and score more runs? And and you know, you don't want to say, well, it's just another game. Because it, it's not. Obviously, a championship game means more. But if as an athlete we focus so much on the title of the game and what it means and the implications, that creates more pressure and stress in our body. And we get tight and we can't think straight. But if you realize, like, hey, I still have to throw strikes i still have to do my job i still have to stay in my back leg and finish or hustle and communicate or move my feet whatever their position is and if you just focus on what you can control and what you need to do when you play well then all of a sudden you're not thinking about how big the game is you're focused on one pitch at a time and that's where we want to get our athletes to be
0: and that goes as far as the level at which athletes are playing too whether it's high school this is a high school game Compared to an athlete who's playing in front of mm-hmm. 10,000 fans, in reality, the only person who's probably going to remember if you strike out or you walk two straight right. guys is you.
1: People are selfish.
0: The fans aren't going to remember Yeah, that right. Day. I mean, I always tell
1: yeah. them, do you think everybody's really concerned about your stats? They're thinking about their own stats. <laughs> or they're, or people in the stands are thinking about their kid or things like that. So trust me, nobody cares. <laughs> you, you care more than anybody.
0: Yep. And I care more and maybe that uh, helps and gives some athlete some comfort. What is it about some athletes, particularly athletes who make it to that higher level, where it's almost the attitude of, you know, not that I have to show these people that I'm good, but I get the opportunity to show these people how good I really am. Where, where does that mentality come about? Is that, a, is that a confidence thing? Is that a thing that's built upon Uh, talent and then confidence where where does that start with uh well I think it's
1: different today than it ever has been so I'm going to go off maybe on a little different tangent than maybe you expected but I think it's a little bit harder for today's kids than it was for me and you when you played because we didn't deal with social media when we played college athletics and these kids everything is out there whether it's on the social media channels or on the YouTube channels or you know on the news or in the you no know, we were very excited if we got written up in the local town paper you know or got mentioned in a little high school section in the Detroit Free Press or something like that but today everything's out there and Nobody wants to look bad on social media. So I think that's an added pressure that today's kids deal with that I find that I have a, have to do a lot of discussions about uh, To help them understand that, you know, again, those are things we can't control and you know You'd probably better off not being on social media as much as you are um, But yeah, there is that pressure um, Of wanting to do well in front of others because let's be honest. That's how we get further So, you know when scouts are there, that's our opportunity But again, we can't control who's watching and what they think and what they say, but we can control our attitude, our effort, how we respond, how we prepare. And if we can focus on doing the things that we can control, we have the best shot at having success. No guarantees, but you're going to definitely put yourself in a better position if you stay present on the things you can control.
0: And that's all you can really ask for. That's right. We talked a little bit the other day. And I I definitely wanted to touch Mm -hmm. on this in today's conversation. Kind of periodization throughout the year, we have different focuses from my perspective and and how I would work with athletes, from how I would train them to improve their mechanics or improve their performance over time. So in the season, we're focused more on uh, external environment. We're focused on knowledge of results types of things, as opposed to in the In the off season, when we really want to make changes quicker, particularly if somebody's injured and they're not able to play in competition at that point anyway, we're trying to make changes a little bit faster to how they throw. And we're using internally focused um, types of things. We're using a lot of uh, our augmented feedback, maybe more uh, knowledge of performance types of things where Mm -hmm. people are thinking about the quality of the movement, the mechanics. But when we get towards the season, we get in season, we really do need to make a shift towards an external focus where athletes are no longer focused on how they move and and each little mechanical property. And from my perspective and the perspective of anybody who's trying to teach movement, the goal would be to influence this movement without any cognitive noise and without excessive um, amount of thinking on the part of the athlete or cognitive attention to how they're doing it. And influencing their of an implicit learning strategy as opposed to an explicit movement strategy. And that's that's great, but we really need to get athletes and parents to, to shift to that, that sort of um, mindset and understand the different times of the year. When you're in season, it's about performance. Like you said to me the other day, it's about performance in season. In the off season, it's mm-hmm. about maybe improving these things and, and getting to, to X um, metric or X level. What can we do with athletes to Give them that um, mental framework because we we can talk to athletes and sometimes it doesn't always always get through. How do we how do we help athletes understand that there's I guess different seasons or different periods of the year? Where we yeah, I mean to I think you said it really well.
1: Things. I mean you know off season is where we develop and improve and make changes, but in the season is where we we play and make minor adjustments. So we're not gonna make wholesale changes or get too detail focus during the season, because then we just throw everything into a tailspin and, and we're very confused. So it comes down to working hard in the off season on, on the things we want to improve on, whether it's strength or flexibility or uh, a change in a mechanic. But once we play, it's just, we have to let our ath- athleticism take over. And the key word here is trust it. Like I'm going to trust the work I put into, and I'm just going to evaluate my performance and do, use maintenance uh, through the course of the season on the physical side, but also on the mental side. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust the routines that I've developed. I'm gonna keep doing my, my visualization and concentration work and my pre-pitch routines that help me stay present, but I'm not making any wholesale changes. Obviously there's exceptions if something is drastically wrong or there's been an injury in the middle of the season, but it's about, this is play time. So you're an athlete. Go out there and play. And when the, when the season's over and you want to evaluate and you want to set some goals for the offseason to put on weight or lose weight or whatever it is, that's when we start focusing on those kind of metrics. But in season, go out there and have fun and just let it rip.
0: Yeah, you, would, you touched on a lot of uh, really key information there. One of the things that came to mind was actually in my second podcast here, uh, Carter and I interviewed Ben Brewster, who's a professional baseball player, and he works with a lot of professional baseball players now, and he talked about how a lot of these athletes aren't at the level that they need to be at to maybe make the prof- make a professional team, and so they spend two years where mm-hmm. there's no competition. They're just training for two years to try to get their velocity to a certain mark, or, or they, they basically get completely detached from this play. and. That could be, like what you're talking about here, when they, when they have to transition back into playing, and there's an argument that they probably should do some form of competition and play in between that, uh, even though they're not quite at that performance level mm-hmm. that, they, that they're aspiring to be at. There's a component of trust associated with that, and they have to trust in their training and trust I, in their I performance. I
1: wholeheartedly believe that people need to compete. Um, two years away from competition is a long time. Um, to not feel the pressures of when it actually counts. Uh, so I think that's the testing ground to see if what we're doing is making any difference uh, because that's where the rubber meets the road. When you step across the white line and you're wearing uniforms and it actually counts, it's a whole different ballgame than just being in the gym and throwing off a, a plastic mound and seeing how hard you throw, et cetera. That, it matters because you know, there's a whole bunch of other things in a game that you need to be thinking about, strategy, Who's coming up next? Righty, lefty. I need to get a ground ball here to get a double play. Uh, who's coming up next inning? Do I want to walk this guy? I'm kind of unintentionally, intentionally to get to the next guy. I mean, there's so many more things you got to think about. So if you go away from competition for two years, you're you're losing those skills. To com- there's competition skills that only get honed in competition. Now the only way that you can try to simulate that a little bit. Is what we call practice under pressure with a purpose where you when you are throwing you're throwing in mentally simulated situations or you're competing against a buddy next to you you know in a simulated bullpen session or you create minor consequences if you don't perform to the level of your goals and things like that in practice where you can kind of feel that pressure you know I often tell my golfers like when you're practicing on the range If you're just banging balls out there, you're not getting any better. You've got to select a target, pull five balls down off the rack, and say, hey, four out of these five need to be within 10 feet of the pin. And if not, do it again. And if not, do it again. Because when you get to that third or fourth ball and you only have one left, that's pressure. And then that's the same pressure you're going to feel out on the course or out on the field. So first and foremost, definitely don't take that I, I mean unless you have to because of an injury I wouldn't take that much time off my opinion from competition that long and secondly if you have to simulate it somehow with some kind of pressure or competition within your practice
0: yeah I like that I like that a lot and we do see it from time to time we're an athlete they had an elbow injury and I actually actually really recently we had an athlete not two years off but young guy elbow injury comes back, goes through therapy, mm. It's doing very well, slips uh-huh. and falls, three fractures in his foot. So he's out for a period of time. And he'll recover quicker than, say, the individual who had hip surgery and then Tommy John, and then now they're out for a considerable period of time. I like that simulated game experience sure. in practice, visualization added to that, and yeah. try to bridge the gap as best you can, But it, I, I, I'm in total agreement with you there. If you're out of the game and you're not experiencing competition, you're definitely you're definitely starting to decline on that. And like we said earlier, you're going to be starting at maybe the same place you were at four or five, and six years ago. And I'll be honest with you, if you're away from competition your, uh, by choice game.
1: that long and you step out in the field and there's fans and it means something, you know how difficult that's going to be to re- try to remember and connect with all the things you've been working on. You're going to get overloaded with the the level of competition and all the other things you need to think about at that time and that's kind of when we get into that fight or flight or freeze kind of situation
0: we're coming up here on an hour um
1: Mm -hmm.
0: one final question for you if you were to leave the audience here with one final point or one concise point on the mental game what would that be
1: i'm going to go right back to where we started Uh, it's one of the most important things that we do as a human being is pay attention to that narrative in your mind Uh, and I always tell my athletes like look when you were born you didn't know who you were and you started getting a lot of feedback and information uh, from trusted people family parents coaches teammates as you get older and you start telling yourself and listening to what other people say and from that, you develop a sense of concept or self-identity. And sometimes we take it as the gospel, what other people tell us that we are. And we repeat those things way too often. Sometimes they're very negative. So take, I would say start taking stock or start paying attention to what you're paying attention to. and And listen to what you're saying to yourself or out loud. And I, sometimes it's fun to joke about, you know, I'm bad at this. I suck at that, whatever. And you're trying to get a laugh out of people. I understand that. But over time, you really do start to believe those things. And so my, my big word of advice would be pay attention to the story you're telling yourself about yourself. And if it's not helping you, start changing that story. You are the driver of your car. Uh, you know, you're the captain of your ship and all that stuff. <clears throat> You decide who you're going to be. Don't let anybody else tell you who you're going to be or what you're good at and what you're not. Make that max effort to go out there and get what you want by and start that by telling yourself what you want and picture it and visualize it and talk about it and then go out there and take action. You know, It's not about just sitting there looking at a vision board, which is great, but you got to get off your butt and you got to go do the work. Uh, so write it down on the vision board, but then get off your butt and go do it.
0: That's perfect. Dr. (laughs) Noveski, listen to your own Mm -hmm. narrative. Where can we find you? Where can athletes find you if they're looking for your services? And and where can people follow your material? You have a podcast as well. We failed to mention it in the beginning. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So real real
1: basic. uh, Yeah, real basic. My website is uh, www.champmindset.com. The name of the company is Champion Mindset Group. You can find me on Google or just put in champmindset.com. Uh, And on that website are a couple short videos that I've done, uh, interviews like this, uh, a link to my podcast, uh, information about my background and information about private sessions or team sessions or special event sessions that uh, just get in touch with me and we can start a chat about how we can get you in here and get you on the road to mental toughness.
0: Perfect, thank you very much, Dr. Jason Nevetsky. In the name of overhead athletics, Signing off.